Let's look in our Bibles to the book of Titus in chapter 2. The book of Titus and in chapter 2, and I'd like for us to read verse 11 through verse 15. Titus in chapter 2 and in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with authority that no man despise thee. The title of our message this evening is The Training of God's Children. The Training of God's Children. But before we get to that, I want to notice some things that Paul had to say concerning his Savior and our Savior. If you notice in verse 10, the last words of the verse, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That goes along with what I just mentioned about that hymn. He never divested himself of his deity. It's just an error to think he did. He is God our Savior. If he is not God, he is not our Savior. In verse 13, you'll notice the wording there, the latter part of the verse. The great God and, or even, it could be understood, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There could be no doubt at all that the Apostle Paul surely believed in a divine Savior a Savior that was truly God. Again, in verse, verse 14, this great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it says, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. In this epistle of this letter to Titus and here in these words in chapter 2 Paul lays out many different teachings that are I think vital instructions for the people of God and again one of these is the the greatness of our Savior again verse 13 the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ and it says, who gave himself for us. I think many people have the idea when they think of Jesus, they only think of the man, Christ Jesus, and we understand his humanity and we do view his personal work here as a man upon this earth. But if you could effectually remove the deity of Jesus Christ, you have effectually destroyed and removed the gospel. 
We have no gospel without this great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you'll look at verse 14, and I, I point this out in different scriptures, Paul wrote, who gave himself for us. Then there is that clause of purpose beginning with the word that. The purpose of him giving himself for us is that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, when we think about what Jesus Christ has done, and just in the first part of this verse, who gave himself for us, and then all of that other work there that he will accomplish according to his purpose, no mere man could accomplish what Jesus accomplished. Just a, a plain, ordinary human being could not accomplish what Jesus Christ has and will accomplish. If you'll hold your place, I'm going back to a familiar verse in Isaiah in chapter 9 and in verse 6. And I think in this one verse, we have both the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was promised yet to come when Isaiah penned these words. For unto us a child is born. That is his humanity as he would be born into this world. But then it says a son is given. God gave his only begotten son. And if you notice the names by which he will be called, included among them is the mighty God. The mighty God in Isaiah chapter 9 and in verse 6. Back in the book of, of Titus in chapter 2, and reading verses 13 and verse 14, it says, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. In, in verse 13, we have a great redeemer, and in verse 14 is great redemption. It is a wonderful thing to know uh, that our redeemer, our savior, is the great God, even our savior Jesus Christ. But then there is such great redemption that our great rede redeemer has accomplished for us. The redemption in which Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood is a real redemption. It is not the conditional redemption of Arminian theology. Arminian theology has a conditional Savior and a conditional redemption. It all depends upon the sinner and what he decides to do. But our Savior is a real Savior. 
His redemption is a real redemption, and he meets all of the conditions and leaves none for us. He leaves none for us. It is a redemption that is accomplished by and through a very costly price. We know Peter wrote that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just his precious blood. I notice in verse 14, he gave himself. Our redemption is by Jesus Christ giving himself. And it goes beyond his obedience, his suffering, his death, and even his blood. He gave himself. He gave his body. He gave his blood. His soul was made an offering for sin. The entirety of the person of Jesus Christ was given for us. Verse 14, the word himself includes everything about the person of Jesus Christ. And I doubt that we will ever understand or know the fullness of the words in verse 14, who gave himself, who gave himself. The words just imply a, a voluntary giving. He just gave up himself. He sacrificed himself for us that he might redeem us, that he might redeem us. There's, there's two things that the Apostle Paul constantly taught and constantly preached, and it was a divine Savior and divine redemption. Those two things you can find all throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. Again, if you'll hold your place here, I'm going to read a verse in John chapter 1. In, in John and in chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, keeping those words in verse 17 of John 1 in mind, I'm going to look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Paul looked upon the first appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ as a manifestation and display of the grace of God. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And we know that this grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Again, we can go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What God the Holy Spirit does with that preaching that's up to the Holy Spirit. Our job is to preach this gospel of grace to every creature. And it says here that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared 
to all men. Notice again the wording in verse 11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation. The salvation that is mentioned here is not any type of salvation that leaves the individual in their sin. You remember Matthew 1.21 came to save his people from their sins. And we are not saved simply from the penalty of sin. We're saved from sin itself. And again, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all sorts of men in all cultures, all races. It's appeared to, to all men. And here I get to my, my really the message in verse 11 through verse 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in a an age which is very special, I think. We live in the same age, really, as the Apostle Paul did and throughout his, his ministry. We live in an age in between the two appearings that I'm dealing with. There's one appearing in verse 11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And I, I associate that with grace and truth coming by Jesus Christ in that of appearing. But then in verse 13, there is a second appearing, and it is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll say again, we live in an age in which we can look back at the first appearing of Jesus Christ. But we can also look forward to the second appearing, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been countless people that have lived upon this earth that do not, did not have that great privilege that we have, we can look back and see with a certainty he has come. Many people live their lives, again, just countless people, looking forward to that. Well, it's accomplished. He has come. We look backwards to that. But we're also in a position where we look forward to that appearing when he does return to this earth. In verse 12, notice the last three words of the verse, this present world. There are many different ways to, 
uh, view that, interpret those words, this, this present world, but I'm going to view it this way, that this is not history as far as we are concerned, and it's not something that is in the future. It is the present world in which we live. Again, it's the same present world in which the Apostle Paul lived. It's in that time period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look in the book of Hebrews, if you would, and in chapter 10. In Hebrews and in chapter 10, the time period that we live in may seem long the way we count time, but with God it's just a short period. Hebrews and in chapter 10 and in verse 37 says, For yet a little while, just a little while, yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. He will come. Now, back in our text again in Titus and in chapter 2, in verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Teaching us. Now just stop there for a few minutes. Teaching us. Years ago when Brother Camp was pastoring in Memphis, I was there at a Bible conference and one of the preachers preached on this text and stressed the fact in verse 12 that the grace of God teaches us. Following the service, I was just in a position I could not help but overhear one of the members of the church there in Memphis was questioning Brother Camp about what that preacher had preached and that member of the church said, what he said can't be right because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And I was just dumbfounded by such a, a statement as that. No doubt the Holy Spirit is our teacher, but if you can't find grace involved there, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Grace does teach us. That does not exclude the working and teaching of the Holy Spirit of God. But this teaching in verse 12, it is not the kind of teaching that we normally think of. It's not just the passing on of knowledge by or through giving instructions or teaching as we normally think of it. The word teaching in verse 12 literally means child training through discipline. And you might need to think about that. Might want to do a little study on that. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, and there is a child training through discipline that teaches us what is mentioned in the latter part of this verse. It's been said, and I understand the statement, I guess I agree with it, 
that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but this child training in verse 12 that is through discipline is to bring us to glory. We're saved by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ, but in verse 12, how should we live in this present world? So many just leave that out of any teaching because it offends people, and I'm sure it would cut down on numbers in a lot of churches if verse 12 was, was really preached as it is. But this word teaching again, child training, Look in the book of Hebrews again, if you would, this time to chapter 12. Hebrews, and then chapter 12, and I'll begin in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. That's part of human responsibility to lay that aside. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You remember patience, endurance. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you ever just considered what joy was set before Jesus when he endured the cross? Something to consider. A joy was set before him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for or because of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, even though he despised the shame. He endured the cross because there was a joy set before him. Verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now keep that in mind. Remember our message is the child training. That speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint, when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with son. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Now, I, I read that to mention this. The word chastening that's used in these verses that we just read is translated from the very same word in Titus 2 and in verse 12, teaching. 
translated from the exact words, the teaching in Titus 2 and in verse 12 is child training through discipline. It involves the chastening of the Lord. This child training in Titus 2 and in verse 12 and again, it has to go hand in hand with the chastening of the Lord in Hebrews 12 is peculiar to God's children. If God does not chasten you, and he'll deal with you as bastards and not sons. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Our text, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Now, I said it's peculiar to God's people. There's a change in the wording here in verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 11, you have the words all men, but when you get to verse 12, you have the word us and the word we. It gets narrowed down to God's people. It gets narrowed down to, to God's people. The child training of God's children, this teaching, has to do with three basic things. And it's mentioned for us in our, our, our text. If you notice in verse 12, it involves denying it involves living, and it involves looking. Those things. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, and all the while looking for that blessed hope the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it mean in verse 12 that the grace of God teaches us denying ungodliness and worldly lust? Denying. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the, by definition, it means to forsake or to renounce. Deny. I would think that, and this is wording that we use, it does not, I know there's no difficulty with God, but I would think that the most difficult part in teaching even God's children to forsake and renounce ungodliness and worldly lust is part of the most difficult thing to be done. Sometimes I use the word unlearning. I use that in Thailand some. And it, over there, and I'm sure it's that way in everywhere, when you come across a people that maybe have some background in religion, even though they have, it's nothing but error, but they've been taught certain things. It's hard to get them to let go of those things. They've been taught it. 
they've been taught. It's much easier to find a people that have never heard and just start from ground zero and teach them. It's hard to teach people denying ungodliness and worldly lust. The grace of God teaches God's children to be what old Baptists used to call themselves, nonconformists, nonconformists. I've got some books in my office on nonconformists, and it was just Baptists that would not give an inch. They would not conform to, to the people altering the gospel in church orders. They would not conform, even if Paul said, be ye not conformed. The grace of God teaches God's children to be nonconformists. That involves both physically and in spiritual things and in doctrine, but only the grace of God can accomplish that. You and I cannot get anyone to change. Only God. The grace of God, in verse 11, that bringeth uh, salvation hath appeared to all men, but teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we, we. Again, it gets very, very particular here that we should live how we should live. The grace of God not only brought salvation unto God's people, but this same grace of God teaches God's people how to live in this present world. Again, that's something so many today in churches do not want to hear. Don't try to tell us how to live. That's the answer you'll get many times in verse 12 that we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world how should we live well be nonconformist. don't be conformed to the world all of us know people who have made christian professions of faith and their lives are void of these three things in verse 12. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And their profession is a lie. It's a false profession. Many wear the name of Christian, but it seems like they're not just conformed to the world, that they're a part of the world. The grace of God that bringeth salvation effectually teaches God's children you cannot, will not live in sin. The true grace of God teaches us that. I said earlier this ch teaching or, or child training is mentioned in verse 12 involves three things. 
denying, living, but then there is this looking, looking. All the while that we are living, we are living with a, an earnest expectation of the coming of the Lord. We're looking for that. The blessed hope of the saints, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The wording is just a little bit different in the original. It's awaiting the blessed hope, earnestly expecting this blessed hope. And while it will be a glorious appearing in the original, it's the appearing of the glory of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is going to be an appearance of the glory of Jesus Christ when he does come. We live in this present world, but all the while in expectation, Jesus is coming. He said he would, and he will come again. In verse 14 again, who gave himself for us, and then there is these basically two reasons here, to redeem us, and to purify us. To redeem us and to purify us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity, but it does not stop there, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. I'm going to turn there. Those words ought to be familiar to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Peculiar people. You could take that word peculiar as you normally think of it and it would be correct. But that word peculiar people also means a people for his possession. Pure people. You'll notice the last part of verse 14. Zealous of good works. Literally, God's children are to be zealous. We're to be zealous. You look at chapter 3 and in verse 1, the latter part of the verse, to be ready to every good work. Be ready. Zealous of good works. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has never taught anyone to be a spectator. Everyone is to be a participant ready to every good work. 
Verse 14 again, zealous of good works. While we are living in this present world, we are constantly taught by the grace of God deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, a people zealous of good works.